it's the most important thing. And we keep telling regions, do the asset mapping, think about your existing workforce, you know, think about your existing, you know, do the work to engage uh, with, with community leaders and, and figure out what people actually want, not just what you want them to have. Um, there are relatively few tools out there uh, that, that are available to do that. And one of the frustrations that I have had for a long time is that, um, you know, we tend to say that everything in that kind of space that's around sort of local engagement and interventions is is sort of best left to philanthropy um, to figure out because it's kind of got a community engagement angle. So that's philanthropy. And the challenge with that answer is that um, the philanthropic community doesn't tend to do long term funding in this country. And so you you have this real gap where what that kind of open source data um, needs to be funded sustainable in a sustained manner so it doesn't just go away. That voice was Kate Gordon, former senior advisor to U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm, talking about the need for better open source tools that every region can use to strengthen their communities and the American project. Her interview coming up next on the podcast, Manufacturing an American Century. Welcome, Americans. You're listening to the podcast, Manufacturing an American Century, with your host, Matt Bogosian. We're excited today to be with a systems leader on many fronts. Kate Gordon, how are you? I'm great, Matt. It's great to see you and hear you. Yeah, great to see and hear you too. As uh, after years as a leader in climate and energy policy, uh, Kate, you just finished two years in the high intensity, very productive uh, U.S. Department of Energy as a senior advisor to Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm. So, uh, first off, thanks for your service. Uh, oh, you're welcome. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, I want to hear a little bit about it. I mean. Um, You've been you've been a systems leader on many fronts. Uh, hopefully, we can get to uh, talk about a lot of the, the your background there. But this experience must have been tremendous. Tell us a little bit about it and the historic federal interventions we we now have to help manufacturers and the ecosystem of support they need to thrive and 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 all of that for uh, for uh, our ascendance in the twenty first century. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was um, it was an amazing time to be in the federal government. And of course, I've known Secretary Granholm for a long time. Um, I was actually on her board at the American Jobs Project, which was a nonprofit she started after she left the Michigan governor's office. And so she and I have stayed close. Um, uh, she's she's a real thought leader. And she brought me in as a senior advisor, you know, really to think about how to bring sort of place based approaches to uh, DOE policy, and that's a pretty big sea change for that department. It's a department that was started really to do research and development primarily. It's a real basic science organization. If you saw Oppenheimer, you know, that's sort of the beginnings of Department of Energy, the Atomic Energy Agency, and then Department of Energy. And um, there was kind of a focus on, you know, how do we design the best widget and then make sure that we can bring it to scale? And I came in to really start thinking about how do we think about how that widget interacts with actual people and places, workers and communities, um, which is sort of my bread and butter. And so that was that was really fun. I staffed her in the early days on the 
interagency work group on coal and power plant communities, um, working very closely with a number of communities, uh, tr either transitioning from coal, looking at that transition, or starting to think about oil and gas transitions. So, um, so really important. But you know, the 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 money. There's a lot of thinking that went into to kind of educating the department about place-based policy, finding some real leaders in the civil service who were already doing that work across agencies. But then of course, um, you know, the big wind in the sails from not just uh, Inflation Reduction Act, but all three of the major bills, um, the infrastructure bill, chips and science, and then the Inflation Reduction Act, just a massive investment in the basic foundational infrastructure that we're going to need if we want to build out a more electrified and sustainable economy which we do, um, and then also just a massive amount of focus on, you know, the demonstration, de-risking demonstration projects and some of the newer technologies, thinking about um, the, the private sector role and loans and other support tax credits to the private sector. Um, just a huge, huge uh, infusion, New Deal level infusion in, into this uh, economic transition that we're all going through to just a more resilient and sustainable economy. And just because it's it's this podcast and your listeners in particular, a, a big piece of that, of course, this sort of, as the Biden administration has called it, a modern industrial economy, we're really focusing in those bills, not only on, again, sort of what's the best widget, how do we get to speed and scale, you know, not caring where things are made or who makes them, but in these bills and this administration, a incredible laser focus on um, domestic manufacturing, bringing back domestic manufacturing to ensure that our economy is more resilient in the face of the kind of shocks we just went through with COVID. And we're going to keep going through as climate impacts keep hitting us and geopolitical impacts keep hitting us. So I'm super excited about, you know, both being able to come in and think really really clearly about communities and and workers and what this means for those people doing the actual building of this economy, but also just this doubling down on manufacturing, which is long. It's it, it, We've been waiting a long time for that. So I'm happy it's happening. That's true. That's for sure. We, we talk oftentimes it's about making, uh, you know, smarter pro, uh, products that solve problems. Right. Yeah. And uh, and we have a, a lot of big problems to solve, uh, you know, the, the, the climate crisis uh, and uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, we, we identify kind of six key manufacturing industries tethered to the White House reports on the weakness of uh, supply chains uh, from yeah. 2021, you know, defense, um, energy, transportation, agriculture, health. IT and health. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we had, you know, we have to figure out how to do that closer to home so that we have yeah. a long term uh, security here here in America and creating good jobs in diverse uh, populations and diverse uh, communities around the country. Kind of the, the North Star of sustainable development, we like to say. Yeah. Well, and if you look at that executive order on supply chains, which I talk about all the time because I think it really anchors sort of, you know, the whole theory of Bidenomics, if you will, is um, most of those things in that in that executive order are also climate related. So even in the defense category, that's really a focus on rare earth and critical minerals, which are, of course, massive inputs into the clean energy economy. You've got the focus on advanced batteries, which is clean energy economy, semiconductors inputs into pretty much every aspect of the clean energy economy. So I think finally, what's exciting to me is that we're we're talking about this kind of 
move away from neoliberalism toward more domestic production and a kind of a serious industrial strategy again. At the same time, we're talking about that industrial strategy having to be lower carbon, more sustainable, and more resilient. And so these are not two separate conversations. It's the same totally. conversation. And it's got to be, and it's great yeah. that we have these new bills, this this, yeah. this infusion, but it's bottom up, right? And, and so your kind of career long focus on regionalism is super important to be woven into the kind of yeah. cocktail of uh, American progress, you know? And, and so let's talk a little bit about that because um, AMCC, itself was was born from uh, Obama administration an initiative called IMCP oh, yeah. where we had you know 11 federal agencies trying to you know uh, uh, give technical assistance and a competition for regions to come together really the kind of the the DNA of so many of the place-based initiatives that are are now like the tech hub program and NSF engines they all have that similar uh, DNA um, you know Talk about, you know, how we uh, how we accelerate the pace of progress at regions because because it, it's different in every region. Um, and our stakeholders, you know, come from the public and private sector. You have a long track record of working with the private sector. Uh, you 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 helped Honcho that risky business report. I remember that was important to me, Kate. Like, in, uh, you know, I was a senior policy counsel at US EPA working for Gina McCarthy, I think, when that came out, yeah. like 2014. Yep. And that was important because you're part, you know, basically it's evidence-based approach, bottom-up economic development and it's nonpartisan. you know you've yep. got business leaders i remember you had uh, hank paulson right the former republican um yep. uh, secretary of treasury uh, as a part of that talk about how this is like just an evidence-based approach that that you know, you know regional stakeholders need to continue to kind of uh, build trust amongst their their regional compatriots there to to move the ball forward in a meaningful way yeah yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, I really just want to emphasize what you said, which is that this does look different in every place. And I think you've got to start there, that we we have to start where people are. And one thing about the U.S. as we're thinking about the kind of, you know, energy transition or just economic transition we're going through is we're not building from a blank page. We're building from an existing economy. And the existing economy has a lot of infrastructure and industry and workforce skills and community engagement. And so starting with that is critically important. One of the super, the things I'm super excited about with the infrastructure bill and IRA is that both of them have direct support for repurposing existing infrastructure, which I think has to be a big part of this conversation. So repurposing uh, a coal plant that's been closed into something else, into small module reactor, into solar and storage, into a clean energy manufacturing facility. That's really exciting because those plants have connections to the grid already. They've got industrial permits already. They often have water rights. They've got a transportation system. They've got a workforce that's living co-located. So it's how do we think about looking at every region and every place and thinking about doing that asset mapping, that classic economic development term, what's already there on the ground? What's the infrastructure? What are the opportunities? How can we build on those instead of this top down, I don't know, we used to call like campaigns in a can, you know, everyone has to do, you know, rooftop solar, that's the answer in every region. It's not the answer in every region. It's certainly the answer in some places. 
but different regions use energy differently, have different infrastructure, have different um, uh, have different um, you know weather patterns and climate impacts, and it all comes down to that. So, I do think that taking those skills, which frankly don't exist at the federal level. Economic development is something we do not do at the federal level. We really do it at the state and the regional level. Taking those skills from regional economic development, local economic development, bringing them to bear on this challenge, uh, because every single part of this country has a role to play um, in, in, in the new energy economy. It's not always an industrial role. In some places, it'll be like a nature-based carbon solutions role, but every place has a role. Um, and how do we leverage on that and capitalize on that and then leverage the federal money coming down to support that regional approach rather than having it as a top down? You know, everyone does the same thing. Yeah, and it's and it's kind of like a muscle that needs to be built up in every region, right? It the is. trust yeah. and the collaboration. Like we're all just trying to teach each other how to be better systems leaders because it takes that that kind of uh, uh, approach uh, to, to get the outcomes that we want to produce. Yep. Um, and, and you're, you know, so you're not coming to regionalism from, from nowhere. You are a part of the state government because states have a role in uh, this kind of thing. I, you know, I worked at the California EPA a little before your time and you were, uh, you worked um, uh, for, uh, for Governor Newsom as yep. a senior advisor there and, and I think ran OPR there, yep. uh, an office that was uh, helped, uh, that was behind a state-led regional initiative. Yep. Talk about the importance of, because, you know, AMCC, we have different, uh, you know, states doing different kinds of um, state interventions to help strengthen um uh, manufacturing communities in their states yep. and so california is on that road too how did you see it what what would the state intervention um the um the surf or the the california jobs first thing that yep. you guys um put together to try to get at that how, how did you think about that and 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 uh, how did you know the golden state um, move out on that yeah yeah, thanks, thanks, Matt. I mean, it, it really goes to what you just said about building muscle memory. I think we haven't for a few decades in this country really invested in regional economic development and planning at the level that we need to, to be able to tackle this kind of moment we're having here, which is a, a moment of a lot of transition and a lot of opportunity. So um, in my view, you know, COVID really, really underscored this. I mean, it was the it was the event that like shone a light on this need for us to rethink how we do economic development. Um, and it's because it was this massive economic shock, as everyone knows, that underscored the fragility of our supply chains because we've offshored so much manufacturing, right? That underscored the fragility of regions of the country that had become incredibly undiversified in terms of their economies. We just all of a sudden we're like looked up and thought, oh no, you know, we've built out this economy for the past four decades that relies on innovation here and installation here and consumption here, but not a lot in between, right? So in California, I was running the Office of Planning and Research, which does long range planning for the state, but also um, co-led with now uh, uh, acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue, co-led a work group for the state, um, the state's uh, economic recovery task force that the governor put together during COVID. Um, and we did an analysis for the task force of all the counties in California and essentially how were they doing under COVID? What was the state of their economies, regional economies? 
and you won't be surprised, and your listeners probably won't either, but the, the counties that were doing the best were the counties with some manufacturing still, uh, because they were actually making things in the county, middle skill jobs, you know, more diversified economies. They just were, they had less bad outcomes than the other places in the state. And I'm including like San Francisco in that very undiversified economy that was extremely hard hit during COVID because most of the lower, uh, most of the workers below the millionaire class were retail and services, which got hollowed out, right? You don't have that diversification. So we looked at that and we knew we had some money coming in from the federal government um, for COVID recovery. And we decided to, to point that money toward this issue of regional planning and economic development and basically say, we can't just be about building the same economies again to recover from COVID. Um, you know, we, we really do, to, to borrow a phrase, need to build back better. We really do need to think of recovery planning and recovery strategies that are building us out toward a more resilient future for the state and one that's more sustainable because that's a core value of California. So um, the Community Economic Resilience Fund or SURF uh, was designed around this goal, $600 million. It's now called the California Jobs First Program and actually was funded by the legislature, not through federal funds. Um, when, when it was put together. But what we did with that, it was fairly controversial actually at the time, was to say the state's regions all have very different impacts from COVID and from the economy of the last few decades. They have very different needs and opportunities. Let's fund, e let's divide the state into regions. We did 13 regions and let's fund each of them equally. That was the controversial part. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's that, fund, yeah. it was, let's fund each of them equally because it is just as important that transition from a timber economy in the Northeast and transition from an agricultural economy in the Central Valley because of water shortages and transition from the oil economy in Kern County because of climate goals. Um, those are all just as important as uh, as the thinking through of transition in San Francisco and Los Angeles, where are the population centers. So we designed this um, with plant, both planning dollars and now uh, there's competition for implementation dollars for the key parts of that planning. And I, you know, I'm now on the other side of it. Um, I'm doing some consulting work now that I'm not in the federal government and getting to help some of those folks with their planning. And it's been really interesting to be coming from the like state level of creating the conditions for this conversation to being in the conversation. It's super messy and hard, but really important. Just briefly on the federal side, um, the the main thing that I did while at the Department of Energy was actually to do something very similar to the SURF or the California Jobs First program, which was to um, to try to create the conditions through the federal funding coming down for regions and communities to have these and workers to have these conversations with developers of projects. Uh, one of the things that happens when Congress appropriates money to a place like Department of Energy is the money's just appropriated to do the project. It's like, here's yeah. a bunch of money, go give this to the private sector and choose the best you know, technology. So because of the secretary's focus on place-based work and her experience and my experience doing this at the regional level, we actually decided that wasn't good enough. And we created a new to the department and I think to the government system of um, scoring competitive applications with 20% of the score for these community benefits plans. So we mm -hmm. created a, a, a structure in which 
private sector companies coming in for, for instance, the battery manufacturing grants, the hydrogen hubs, needed to tell DOE, need to tell DOE how, like they need to do that analysis, that asset mapping I talked about. They actually need to come in with, here's uh, the place we want to put this project. Here's why we want to put it there. Here are the existing assets. Here's the existing infrastructure. Here's why we think it'll be competitive. Here is the work, current workforce. Here's our plan to um, not only like build pathways from to that workforce, but also to create high quality jobs. Here's our plan to um, increase, you know, ensure benefits to disadvantaged communities and mitigate harms to those communities if there are those communities in the region. Um, and here's our plan to make sure that this whole thing is more diversified because the current energy system in the U.S. is extremely undiverse. Um, the U.S. Energy and Economic Employment and, and Energy Report, USER, that DOE puts out every year, um, energy is one of the least diverse fields in the country. It's about 80% white and male. Um, and so there's a real need to diversify. But that community benefits plan process then basically says, look, you're going to take federal money, which we're excited to give you. We're excited to partner with you, but you need to tell us how you're going to do, uh, create the conditions for the product to be done as as well as possible with as much buy-in and as much high-skilled labor as possible. And we really feel like that is is both necessary just to, you know, create a better environment for these types of projects, but also because um, uh, the projects themselves, we found have, are cited and permitted much faster if they have that kind of buy-in from the outset. So just wanted to note that map because it's a yeah. it's another similar. So instead of taking the surf approach, which was like, let's create a big pot of money to do planning and implementation bottom mm -hmm. up. This one said, we just got a huge pot of money. Let's make sure that we attach to it um, some requirements that people are thinking about this stuff as they do these projects. Totally. And having those requirements be, you know, uh, aimed toward the, the target, sustainable development, right? Economic development exactly. for sure, but also DEIA, environmental yeah. sustainability and national security. Yeah. And and, exactly. and it's been exciting to see the evolution of agencies uh, kind of North Star. It's almost like we're getting to a national grand strategy, Kate. I don't think we're there I, yet, but, you know, we're, we're getting there. I mean, look, the fact that the president put out an executive order with listing industries, critical strategic industries that's such a huge step forward frankly yeah. or a huge step toward what other countries do and we just have not historically done so i'm excited about that but yeah now i'm coming back and um i'm at berkeley as a visiting scholar i'm doing a a book project which i'm very excited about trying to um, kind of talk about all the things i've been talking about here um and um, I'm also, I teach a class at Stanford, uh, which I've been teaching for about six years um, in the law school and business school, which is kind of a systems thinking class on climate, uh, brings in a lot of finance as well as uh, as the infrastructure and politics pieces um, and doing some consulting and just, you know, trying to keep doing this work however I can. That's my story of my career. I do sort of the same thing from a bunch of different perches. Yeah, well, <laughs> throughout super, my career. <laughs> super important. And and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't dive into one of the things that we hear from regions around the country uh, around uh, development of smarter tools. You were talking about mapping. So we have this whole, you know, uh, 
co-created project with a lot of, uh, it's really unfunded. Uh, you know, we have so much data out there, open source data that come out of federal agencies and other open source uh, venues that's not woven together in any kind of uh, uh, useful gap analysis tool for regions to figure it out. And that's so kind of like to pick your brain on that. I mean, we're going down into a silo, but it's super important because it's kind of like a, a threshold issue for a lot of regions. It's like it, we, I've learned during the White House roundtables I was a part of way back when and these AMCC roadshows, how do we do better in bringing together um, stakeholders around some kind of an open source um, tool and playbook for regional gap yeah. analysis? Yeah. Such a good question. Um, it's so important. I, uh, I, I've thought about this a lot um, just because I, I, I agree with you. It's the most important thing. And we keep telling regions do the asset mapping, think about your existing workforce, you know, think about your existing, you know, do the work to engage uh, with, with community leaders and, and figure out what people actually want, not just what you want them to have. Um, there are relatively few tools out there uh, that, that are available to do that. And one of the frustrations that I have had for a long time is that, um, you know, we tend to say that everything in that kind of space that's around sort of local engagement and interventions is is sort of best left to philanthropy um, to figure out because it's kind of got a community engagement angle so that's philanthropy and the challenge with that answer is that um the philanthropic community doesn't tend to do long-term funding in this country and so you you have this real gap where what that kind of open source data um needs to be funded systemically sustainable in a sustained manner so it doesn't just go away when yeah. the funding stops someone's got to up update the website someone's got to make sure that you know it's accessible someone's got to make sure it's interactive you've got to upgrade to the newest web browser formats i mean there's a lot that incorporate ai and natural language processing there's a lot you can do um and it hasn't really been anyone's job to do that um and i don't know exactly whose it is i I think about this a lot. I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with the role of the regional commissions as potentially a place to do some of this because they have this interesting state and federal connection to each other and they tend to transcend political change. They don't exist in every part of the country though. So California doesn't have one for instance. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about this. I would love any good ideas, but I 100% agree with you yeah. that you you need the data to be available. And the one piece of it, just to your point about people doing things the way they've always done them, a lot of things are are changing, not just politically, but like from an engineering standpoint, things are changing. So you talked about the Risky Business Project that was focused on physical impacts of climate change and their effect on specific regions and specific industries in the US. That's changing, like those are becoming more frequent. We could stop emitting tomorrow and climate impacts would be more frequent for the next 50 years at least. So the way you plan today has to incorporate climate impacts into planning or else your project could be underwater or on fire or overheated, right? You could be spending 10 times more on energy cost to air condition than you thought. It's, these things have got to be incorporated. That wasn't true. 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, similarly, the entire transmission system is changing completely. The way that we generate and create and send energy around the country, complete sea change in how we do that. We, we just think Big about time, California. Yeah. 
right? Like California created its whole transmission system with a bunch of coastal power plants that were cooled using ocean water, sending power inland. Now we're creating a whole power system fueled by renewable energy in the Central Valley, sending sending um, electricity to the coast. It's a completely different system, completely different. Many new challenges, many of them engineering challenges, many of them material science challenges. So it's you can't just rely on the lessons of the past because the system itself has changed. And I yeah. think too few people really are getting their heads around that. Yeah, and it's going to be in a constant transition, let's face it, exactly. right? And to, so to your exactly. point, it's super important, Kate, about kind of just consistent institutional funding for... Uh, open source, uh, you know, tools to 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 yep. figure out, you know, where the puck is going to be, so we can skate to exactly. it, you know, more effectively exactly. with our interventions. Yeah. So hopefully, we can uh, impose on your great knowledge and and uh, and connections going forward in this space. Because and maybe you can talk about this in some of your writing, because I think it's, you know, uh, if you backcast for where we need to be, you know, like by 2050, unless we have a, you know. <laughs> Uh, kind of a, a better uh, evaluative uh, set of tools um, for implementation with this this funding at all these different levels and public and private partnerships. I, I think we're going to underperform. And uh, I think and, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I also yeah. actually really do wonder if there's an AI role in totally the asset mapping part of this because there's. So much of it is sort of finding the same data and just layering it. And there's got to be a way to sort of pull, this is what AI should be good for, right? Like pulling, you know, the infrastructure stuff on top of the historic BLS data stuff on top. I mean, all the pieces that you'd bring. But I think the governance system is a big part of that question. It's sort of who owned, where does that live? Like if you yeah. were to have an open source and I, I, I kind of keep coming back to maybe it has to be government just because that is the most consistent place for it to live. Um, but I would love to see that because I think it's it's critically needed, similar to what we're now doing with climate data. I mean, there there is a lot of climate data now available that you can overlay onto that as well. So, But all these things live in silos in different places. So how do we bring them together? So here we are. We're at near the end of this interview, Kate, and our constituency, public-private partners, you know, a lot of regional leaders. What final messages do you have for them and on how to accelerate the pace of progress? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Matt, like what I think is so exciting about this is that we are in a moment when all of a sudden there's a recognition that many of us and many of the people listening have been saying for years. So I don't want to say this is new, but... Finally, you know, the president recognizes that um, it is critically important that we rebuild capacity in this country to be able to make things and make them well and effectively and then compete in that space, right? Like that is a very, very big deal. That recognition is that coming at the same time as a recognition of all these transitions you just talked about. So I think that's really exciting because it actually means, look, every single region of this country, every industry currently existing in this country has opportunity in this set of transitions. There's, there is no, you know, there is no kind of niche set of green jobs or green industries off in a corner somewhere. This is the entire economy we're talking about. So there's just a lot of opportunities. So I think like this is the moment to bring to bear all the knowledge that folks have out there about lean manufacturing and about advanced manufacturing skills and about efficiency and about the role of labor and about 
you know, uh, how to be more efficient in your supply chains and your critical minerals and your and your your raw materials. All of those same lessons can be brought to bear in in this current moment. So I think it's just like I would just say lean in on, you know, everyone listening has a set of skills and knowledge that will be um, valuable to this conversation and just lean in on pushing on exactly what you said, push on the silos. This is not, it's not a niche issue. It is a, how do I do my business on a day-to-day basis and do it more sustainably and better? Um, And I think we can all be part of that. Yeah, great. Well, you're leading the way, Kate, uh, systems leader, uh, visiting scholar at UC Berkeley, School of Business, former senior advisor on many fronts to to Governor Newsom, (laughs) to Secretary Granholm, quite quite a distinguished career. Looking forward to to, uh, what you're going to do next. Thanks for being on the podcast, Manufacturing in American Century. Thanks so much, Matt. You can learn more about AMCC by joining our weekly mailing list at AmericanMCC.org backslash subscribe. If you're a manufacturer, economic development professional, workforce and trading person, capital provider, or work in any field critical to American manufacturing, send us a note. We'd love to hear about progress from your part of the ecosystem and join us on our Monday calls. The next episode of this podcast, Manufacturing in the American Century, will be coming out soon. So in the meantime, spread the word by sharing about AMCC and the podcast on your Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Manufacturing in the American Century is available on Spotify and all major podcast platforms. Thanks for our production partners, AMCC Operations Director David Van Sicklin and Mr. Mike McCallan from Podcasting for Associations. That's it for now. I'm Matt Bogosian with you, Manufacturing in American Century. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man.